0: people give Facebook too much credit to think that they even really have a game. I think they're mostly in a sort of constant state of panic and reaction. And if you just look at how they've behaved over the last couple years, you know, several years, like they state some grand principle, they get beat up mostly in the New York Times. It turns out that principle wasn't really a principle and they totally changed what they were doing. Or then they get beat up on Capitol Hill and change again. I mean, I don't think this stuff is so predictable or predetermined that, you know, they have gone and created this quasi-international institution. But I don't think they really know or can predict what they've unleashed. And it could absolutely turn out to be a press release, nothing that ever matters. Or, you know, we could wind up getting taken away by the Black helicopters of the Oversight Board in several years and thinking, huh, I guess this wasn't an advertising stunt.
1: I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 11th, 2021. It's another episode of Arbiters of Truth. Lawfare's mini-series on disinformation and misinformation. This week, Evelyn Dweck and I talked to Ben Smith, media columnist for the New York Times and former editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News. Ben spends a lot of time thinking and writing about the gatekeepers who hold the power to shape our public sphere. At BuzzFeed News, he capitalized on the way the rise of the internet allowed upstarts to work around the old gatekeepers, like major newspapers. Now, at the Times, he's one of them. But there are also the other new gatekeepers, like social media platforms, flailing around as much as the rest of us and trying to make sense of the role they found themselves in. So what does Ben think about the current state of the media ecosystem and where it's headed? And why, in his view, was February 26, 2015, almost exactly six years ago, the last good day on the internet? It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 11th. Ben Smith on gatekeepers in the internet age. So, Ben,
2: you're the media columnist for The New York Times, but you seem to write not infrequently about social media. So let's start broad. And we're not asking you to weigh in on the fraught and legally irrelevant question of whether these things are platforms or publishers. But when you write about them, do you think of them as media companies? Or maybe a better way of putting it is, how do you think about platforms as relating to your beat?
0: So first of all, and maybe I don't, I, hopefully this is interesting enough to your listeners, but there's a, this sort of special debate over whether platforms are publishers or media companies. And I think it's just sort of a waste of time. Like they're obviously what they are. It's not that complicated. They are neither television channels, you know, nor are they bulletin boards, you know, to, and, and I think getting stuck in kind of analogies to analog media is just distracting. They're obviously very central to the way information flows, the way news works, the way entertainment works in, you know, 2021 America. And so I've kind of annexed them to my beat.
1: So in your role in -in editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, as as you recently wrote, you obviously capitalized on the rise of the internet, and you wrote in a recent column that, and I'm quoting here, we were better than anyone in those days at making things for social media, mostly lists and quizzes and short videos. So looking at our current information ecosystem, where I think uh, a lot of people feel like that kind of attention-grabbing stuff is sort of what got us into this mess, broadly construed, do you have any regrets? You know, I, guess, I mean,
0: yes, I also think it's complicated. You know, I, I don't think that the line from 41 dogs who are disappointed in you to the capital riot is is exactly linear. And I also don't think that BuzzFeed or sort of internet media like caused the rise of social media. But I do think that we were very optimistic about it. You know, we sort of didn't see its dark side as clearly as, as we could have didn't see that, you know, the same, sort of tactics and, and really mindset of, of creating media for social, you know, that, that we were using for social media could just as easily be used, you know, by really kind of dark right-wing populism. And actually it's easier to do it. I mean, it was, it was interesting because one of the constraints on news, on social media, is that if it's if you have to keep it true, it's harder. It's, you know, it's like, you can't just go for the most viral option because you're it's a constraint to have to say things that are true. And if you're not bound by that, you can be even better at social media. And that was something we were very kind of aware of at BuzzFeed, you know, that, that it was a choice to and that we were giving up some audience by insisting that things were true.
1: Was there a point at which you sort of realized that you might have been wrong in your optimism? Like, was there an obvious inflection moment? Or is it just sort of a, a slowly dawning realization where you look back and look at yourself a couple years ago and think, oh, my God, what was I thinking?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, so I date it to, I guess, the end of 2015. Gamergate, I think, was obviously, in retrospect, in 2014, this hard, slightly hard-to-explain incident that I think prefigured a lot of what happened now in terms of, of, of the kind of internet serving as a place that reactionary forces could organize and, and spread basically false messages. and And I think... You know, at BuzzFeed, we we did pay a lot of attention. I think we were kind of early to take the, a lot of this stuff fairly seriously. I mean, I think of the the last kind of good day on the internet as, and and I think you know, we um at BuzzFeed published this in, a, in a, on um I think it's early twenty fifteen, maybe February twenty fifteen. There was this day when in the morning some llamas got loose in Arizona, and the entire nation and the entire internet were just fixated watching these like hapless local sheriff chase llamas around and the llamas kept getting away. It was like a total delight. And then that evening, an editor of mine, somebody on Tumblr sent her a message saying they couldn't figure out whether this dress was white and gold or black and blue. And she put it on BuzzFeed and it became this just like utterly amazing, totally, you know, harmless and fun viral sensation. And looking back, I think of that as kind of the last good day on the Internet. I think it was like February 26th, 2015.
2: I gotta say, I was not expecting you to be quite so specific uh, in your in your turning point, but that's uh, incredibly useful. Quinta and I often talk about how you know an explanatory theory of everything is that everything is Gamergate in one sense or another. Uh, it's just this recurring theme over the past few years. So one of the themes of your work, uh, particular at the Times, is this obsession with gatekeepers. So who gets to decide what's within the bounds of discourse and who directs our attention? And obviously at BuzzFeed, you were in a sense trying to compete with the old gatekeepers and now you're one of them. And the New York Times itself is, is struggling to maintain its iron grip on agenda setting um, as the internet constantly allows people to, I don't know how you'd put it, but like climb the fences and, and work around the gatekeepers. And I think it's fair to say that the last few years in particular, we've seen this turn as you were sort of saying that it's it's great to tear down the old gatekeepers to oh no we need gatekeepers <laughs> so how do you think about the the role of gatekeepers now
0: you know i'm more a reporter than kind of a theorist so i, I don't i mean i, I mean I and, I and i don't think there's like a simple answer to the question of like, are gatekeepers good i mean i think that the pendulum swung away from the sort of broadcast and print companies that had really decided what was acceptable to print and had to some, in various ways through the years discredited themselves or, you know, or at least raised questions about their own credibility. I mean, the Iraq war being the sort of obvious, obvious instance of that, but also, you know, you represented this pretty exclusionary and exclusive point of view on the world and both in terms of being very American and, and which slice of America got to control it. And so, I mean, I definitely welcomed it's the sort of collapse of that. But, it, but, I mean, I think there will probably, to some degree, always be voices that, at least, as you say, kind of steer attention. I think the question of, you know, who and who the, who who does that and how is pretty um, is pretty important. And, and obviously, and now it's becoming kind of an interaction between a more complex set of of actors, including the social media companies, for sure.
2: Can I get you to explain a little bit more about how you see the distinction between reporting and theorist? And I guess what you see as the role of your column. Like, if if you don't have a grand theory of like what the media or gatekeepers should be doing, are you sort of like a chaos agent, or or what are you trying to achieve with it, with your work?
0: <laughs> oh god, yeah, I think I'm. Ba- I mean, honestly, yeah, it's pro- sort of a personality flaw, but I'm probably a chaos agent first. I mean, I think reporting. I mean, I, I guess I really believe in reporting, and I think my sort of value system has to do with it's good that people know what's happening and that you can't worry too much about the consequences of, of people knowing true information because you, that leads you to start lying. Like the sort of obvious logical next step once you get concerned about people knowing true things is to lie to them. And so I tend to kind of stop there in my own work. I guess the other thing I would say though, because obviously at BuzzFeed, I was, at the times I get to just be a chaos agent. At BuzzFeed, I was making decisions about coverage a lot. And I do think one thing that people don't think about, but that is just obviously true, is that different media organizations, different social media platforms, fill different roles and ought to be making different decisions. Like, I thought it was appropriate for BuzzFeed to publish the dossier, and I thought it was the right call. I don't think it would have been the right call for the New York Times. And I think that sometimes there's this attempt to sort of seek an iron law for everyone in every situation when when that's not really appropriate. Different media players have, and actors have always filled different roles.
1: I'd love to ask you more about the, the Steele dossier, just because... I feel like I've I've spent, at this point, four years living through the fallout (laughs) of the dossier. You know, every time you write about Russia, someone pops up and will say, but what about? And one of the things that has always struck me as interesting about Ural's decision to publish, and this goes back to the point Evelyn's making about gatekeepers, is that, and you said this at the time, it felt like when BuzzFeed published the dossier that everyone um, at least in Washington, DC, had seen it, except for the public. It was floating around think tanks, it was floating around the hill, it was floating around among reporters. And that BuzzFeed kind of made this decision to say, you know, it's not fair, maybe isn't quite the right word, but it's it's not fair for everyone in the know to kind of have this as a the, you know, the world's biggest open secret and the public not to see it. And that has struck me over the last four years as A really interesting example of how we've seen under Trump, I think, uh, news organizations become a lot more transparent about their reporting. You know, you'll start to see um, even legacy papers start reporting not only about, you know, when they when they read the stories, not only about the information they got, but how they got it, you know, how many interviews they conducted. Here are the primary source documents. And that obviously has some downsides. You have to show your hand a little more. In the case of the dossier, you're maybe putting information out there that isn't 100% vetted. How do you think about that? Is that a accurate description of sort of the, the trend in the press over the last four years? And how do you see the dossier in relation to that?
0: Yeah, I think I mean, I think about that a lot. And I definitely it, it's useful to think about different media organizations playing different roles. If I'm running, you know, a print publication aimed at the elderly, like I might not say, hey, you probably haven't heard this crazy rumor. But here it is. And by the way, it's false. But if I am writing for young people who are on the internet, I think it's totally appropriate for me to say, you know, you're swimming in these very polluted waters. You've seen this weird stuff floating around. Here's what we know. Here's what we don't. We're not going to pretend it doesn't exist and leave you on your own while, you know, over the course of six months while we figure it out. That's sort of as a general rule. The dossier is a bit different. The dossier is kind of a cousin. And I think in general, if you're writing for an audience who are living on the internet, living in social media, which was very, very true of BuzzFeed and to varying degrees, true of everybody else, too. I think it's, your, it's appropriate. It's a good service, and it's your responsibility to help people navigate the actual world, information space they live in. The dossier was, a, in some ways, a cousin of that decision. I mean, because it, it, it wasn't just, as you describe, an, an inside secret to everybody in power, who were, by the way, making decisions based on it, not just looking at it and being interested. It had been briefed to, to two presidents, to Barack Obama and then to Donald Trump, and and CNN had then reported that there, you know, had done, and this sort of gets lost in the telling of this story, but CNN had gone up on air and said, you know, I hold in my hand a document with a list of communists at the State Department. Like, I have in my, you know, we have this document that says the president of the United States has been compromised. You know, at that point, you really got to show it to everybody. The idea that you're just waving around a mysterious document with dark secrets about the president, that to me is the least tenable version of this.
2: So let's go back to the supposed constraint, as you identified it, of saying things that are true in reporting. Not everyone seems to feel it. And one thing I'm sort of generally obsessed with is that so often when we talk about the influence of social media, we talk about it completely divorced from the still incredibly powerful role of of old media when it comes to disinformation. And to me, the ten thousand pound elephant in the room here is Fox News. You've been doing a lot of reporting about this recently, and in particular about the defamation actions that have been brought by companies that were targets of the incessant campaign of falsehoods on Fox that were aiming to delegitimize the election results. Can you maybe just broadly walk our audience through your story there?
0: I think I do think one of the things that Donald Trump always knew and that those of us who, lo- who kind of spent a lot of time obsessing about new media kind of forgot is that television really remains extremely, extremely important. And the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal have outsized roles to play too. Um, it's not a totally level playing field, even if it is pretty chaotic out there. But um, Fox News and Newsmax and OAN, all of them relying on like the least reliable people on Twitter and random anonymous people on 4chan and Reddit, picked up this, in the days after the election, this just totally, totally bananas idea that in various versions of it, a company called Smartmatic, which was, in this telling, co-founded by Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, had some kind of software system where they could switch votes to Donald Trump from Donald Trump to Joe Biden and that that's what had happened. And this obviously had no, I mean, this just had no basis in reality at all. The co-founders are, in fact, Venezuelan. They had, in fact, done some elections in Venezuela in the early 2000s. But the reason it is, I think, an extremely strong defamation case, and you have a lot of lawyers listening, I'm sure, who have their own views on this, is that this company, Smartmatic, didn't do any business in any of the relevant states. It had a modest contract in Los Angeles County and otherwise works around the world and not in the U.S., And it hasn't really had any significant business in the U.S. since like 2007, sold its U.S. subsidiary in 2007. And and meanwhile, depends for its business on people trusting them, politicians around the world feeling like it's a safe political choice to give them contrasts. And so you had both Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell spouting all sorts of just bananas, falsehoods about them and about another company called Dominion that you know, that was in fact in the relevant states, but other than, the, but you know, but did not participate in the conspiracy to just flip votes. But then you also had hosts on Fox news and on Newsmax amplifying, repeating, speculating about this. I mean, theory really like dignifies it with this just sort of utterly bananas set of statements. And so, um, yeah, so they, they, filed and, and Smartmatic, which has threatened, Newsmax and OAN and Fox filed suit last week against Fox in in um in New York state court.
1: One of the things I find really interesting about this story is the question of why now. Um and I think I can frame that in a couple different ways. One is why now as in why in late January early February 2021 are these companies only filing these lawsuits as opposed to say Last month, or you know, at the end of November, and another is why are they filing them only in 2021? Like, is the stuff that Fox is saying now really crazier, really more over the line of defamation than it's been putting out there over the last four, 10, 15 years? I'd be interested in your thoughts on that.
0: I actually think that they. They they were incautious after the election. I mean, there's no law against lying, no law against political propaganda, no law against saying all sorts of crazy stuff, which Republicans around Donald Trump and which Fox News has for years said. But, you know, they also have lawyers. They have betting. They, you know, they are familiar with defamation law. And, you know, mostly to say, you know, Nancy Pelosi is the worst person in the world and a communist, that's fine. That's legal. And I think they just got a little carried away after the election. And with like you know, with trying to ingratiate themselves to Trump, it was, Fox is very chaotic. It's not a normally run company. It's these fiefdoms and these different hosts care more, I think about what Donald Trump thinks about them than what Rupert Murdoch thinks. And it's sort of designed, it's sort of that kind of, I can think of it as kind of like malign neglect. So they, so Maria Bartiromo, Janine Pirro, Lou Dobbs in particular, were out there telling Trump what he wanted to hear. and. I mean, it is honestly amazing to me. They kept doing it without lawyers, without somebody saying that this is just, you know, it's just textbook defamation. They're going after businesses. But I think they were thinking of it in the context of politics where you can just get away with a lot more. You can say things about political actors who are public people in the public square and be very vitriolic and that's fine. I, I guess nobody noticed for a minute that they were just out there defaming private companies with, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue at stake.
2: So you recently did an episode of the New York Times podcast for The Daily where you sort of seemed conflicted or maybe tortured or sort of had your doubts about the the role of defamation here? I mean, I tend to agree with what you just said, that this like seems textbook defamation and sort of like the idea that you shouldn't use defamation here sort of almost amounts to saying that defamation shouldn't be a cause of action against any media because of free speech concerns. Like if not now and for this, when and for what? But I guess, how do you feel about the role of defamation here? And as someone that was, you know, editor in chief of a publication, would this have worried you?
0: I mean, I'm very, you know, I, I don't, I'm I'm very skeptical of the way defamation threats are used. I mean, in my experience, threats and lawsuits, right, when I was at BuzzFeed, were mostly used to try to suppress true Me Too stories. Like, that's for sure the number one reason we would get defamation threats is that we were going to write a story about a woman who'd been sexually harassed in some way in the workplace, and her powerful boss would threaten us to try to prevent it from being published. The, the lawyer who Smartmatic hired, a very good lawyer named Eric Connolly in Chicago, made his name in the defamation space by suing ABC News under the totally preposterous um, food disparagement laws of the state of Dakota, which make it particularly, um, you know, the, the damages, it's like treble damages or something if you if you disparage food, just ridiculous kind of industry capture of the state and won this massive like 170 million plus settlement because they'd railroaded ABC News under this ridiculous law and so I'm not you know and I'm broadly not that sympathetic to defamation cases I think I do think you know if you think these laws exist for a reason you know the damages are so clear here I think the thing with defamation is often they're like it's here you just have these companies whose whose existence and whose revenue depends on politics in this very direct way. And then these folks are out there really you know, just lying and damaging them. So I think if you think that exo- that law exists for a reason, you know, this is the reason.
1: There have been a, a couple personnel announcements that I think also touch on this question of how Fox and other big media organizations, traditional media organizations are Positioning themselves in the wake of these lawsuits and the wake of the Biden presidency. So for one thing, it was announced last week that uh, Fox a part of way with Lou Dobbs, who's one of Trump's favorite Fox hosts on Fox Business, and I think a, a persistently, a persistent purveyor of the disinformation around the election. You also had a column this week about the firing of a editor who had produced a lot of pro-Trump books by a major publishing company. Acknowledging that comparing those two things is a little bit of apples and oranges. Is this an example of sort of self-policing that we might see in in the wake of pushback after the Capitol riots? Do you expect to see more of this?
0: I mean, I think in the wake of the Capitol riots, you know, the Publishers and book publishers, who I definitely, this is what I spent the last week thinking about, you know, have been trying to figure out where they draw the line and I think have decided to draw it at people, at sort of insurrectionists and to stop publishing their books. You know, they made, I mean, they really made very good money off of publishing kind of Trumpy books. And and there was an editor at, uh, at Hachette in particular who was like kind of, if you were like Donald Trump Jr. selling a book and that even... And then all the other publishers were just a little squeamish about it because it was so, among other things, full of factual inaccuracy. There was this one editor at uh, at Hachette who would pick it up, and and they made you know they it's really good business because it's cheaper to buy books nobody else wants, and then they really do sell. Um, Andy No's book is, is is another of hers that is a huge bestseller right now on the right, um, and they fired her last month because I think they decided that they couldn't really, you know, either look at s- themselves in the mirror or more likely look at their staff in the, you know, across the zoom call, if they kept publishing them, even though it was pretty good business.
2: Okay. So let's move from the old gatekeepers to the new gatekeepers. During your time at the Times, you've published columns with headlines ranging from what's Facebook's deal with Donald Trump to when Facebook is more trustworthy than the president. And so it feels like you might be working through some conflicting feelings about the company, which is perhaps a little unusual. I think people generally have very strong and fixed views about Facebook one way or the other. How, how do you feel about it uh, sort of generally?
0: How do I feel? I don't know. I'm not sure I really feel one way or the other.
2: <laughs> Fair enough. I guess the, the, the question I'm trying to ask is like, do you think of it you know, as, as, as an as, inherently... the, as the
0: great Ben Shapiro once said, you know, facts don't care about your feelings Evelyn.
2: <laughs> That's um you are the first to quote uh, Ben Shapiro on this podcast, Ben. Uh, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> do you think of it as like a malign actor in this in this space in the in the thing that you're trying to the object of your study, the the information ecosystem, do you view it as inherently malign or just sort of uh, something that we need sort of need to reckon with or, or neither of the above?
0: I mean I guess I think that it, you know they you know are very focused on building this lucrative business and have made all sorts of excuses to themselves that have sort of lined up there. I mean, the one thing that makes me crazy is these tech companies that, and companies in general, who sort of dwell on their own values and their value system, their values are so important to them. Like they have their business and they mostly shape their values around what's good business. And then often try to explain it in these sort of ridiculous, highfalutin terms. And yeah, I think they've been obviously, you know, behind, you know, as a lot of us were, right? But but I think that they were obviously slow to see the danger you know the dangerous things happening and developing on their platforms including you know harassment and then all sorts of other kind of really ugly kinds of organizing going on and and they also are navigating political crosswinds where they don't want to upset republicans or democrats unduly and i don't know i mean i think it's a, I think it's a great story i don't think they're i don't mean i don't think they're waking up in the morning saying how can we destroy democracy but i don't think they're necessarily waking up in the morning saying they're thinking their priorities to preserve democracy either. And I think that the sort of lack of any sort of regulatory framework for them to operate in, I mean, it's not really the job of private companies to have values and set policies in normal countries
2: okay, except that there is now this sort of really high-profile case or example of where they really are trying to reassure us that they do have values and they do care about democracy and they're going to to tie themselves to these inchoate principles of free expression and voice. Um, You recently published a column on this new fancy oversight board that Facebook set up to review some of the content decisions that it makes. One of the pieces of pushback that I get in my work on the board is that by even writing about it I'm giving what essentially amounts to Facebook PR or propaganda oxygen and falling for their game and sort of legitimating this thing that says we have values and we will stick to them. But really, it's sort of like a, a, a business uh, advertising campaign. I write for this dinky little blog called Lawfare and, and get that kind of pushback. You write for The Times. Did you get any of that pushback or do you have any concerns about sort of buying into Facebook's game here?
0: I mean, I guess I think that people give too much, Facebook too much credit to think that they even really have a game. I think they're mostly in a sort of constant state of panic and reaction. And if you just look at how they've behaved over the last couple years, you know, several years, like they state some grand principle, they get beat up mostly in the New York Times. It turns out that principle wasn't really a principle and they totally changed what they were doing. Or then they get, they get beat up on Capitol Hill and change again. I mean, I, I don't think this stuff is so predictable or predetermined. I think mean, what's so interesting, and you've obviously written more about this and with more sophistication than anybody else, that, you know, they have gone and created this quasi-international institution with, I think, not, you know with a certain amount of forethought and a handful of smart people like, you know, Noah Feldman, Kate Klonick and others thinking about it. But I don't think they really know or can predict what they've unleashed. And it could absolutely turn out to be a press release, nothing that never matters. Or, you know, we could wind up getting taken away by the black helicopters of the oversight board in several years and thinking, huh, I guess this wasn't an advertising stunt.
1: So which do you think it's going to be, black helicopters or advertising?
0: I mean, I think that the other likelihood, the other reasonably likely things that Facebook isn't a relevant social media platform in five years, and that the media keeps changing and that you know, that as they sort of build up these institutions to fight the last war, we all move on. So I I don't know. I mean, I think, but I I think the oversight board is interesting because it's, it does seem to be actually, there's, you can imagine a path where it does fill a kind of gap and kind of legit and legitimizes itself in a world where transnational corporations have a ton of power and governments aren't particularly good at, and don't seem to have any real way to impose regulation on them. I mean, you know, OPEC is a really important transnational institution that has been really resilient. So, I mean, I think you <laughs> know, these, these things do get created sometimes.
2: Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, though. I think we often forget how young these these companies are and these platforms. Like, that's like really sort of fifteen years of, of Facebook, and there's this idea that they're permanent and this is it now. This is this is the world we live in. But I um, completely agree that that's not necessarily borne out by by history and and how these things work. But I'm curious then, what you think? The obvious follow-up to that is, okay, so what do you think's next? Like, are we going to see a return to massive decentralization or things like, I, I don't want to bring up the Substack discourse, but I might just sort of casually hint at the Substack discourse. Like, where do you mm-hmm. see this heading?
0: I mean, I think a lot of different directions at the same time, which I guess is what fragmentation is. But I think you see subs, people leaving both social media and mainstream media for Substack and Patreon and a bunch of other places that you can essentially, you know, live the thousand true fans dream and and speak to a smaller community and make a living at it. I think, you know, th- there's a question of whether you'll also see stuff segment more on both ideological and national lines, right? I mean, China has a different social media world. Russia to some degree has a different set of social media platforms, you know, I mean, I think if you're like Germany right now, and I, I, Angela Merkel is obviously freaked out about about what Twitter did to Trump. I mean, do, do, do you see the European Union? I mean, these social media companies like to pretend and we like to talk about their algorithms and I think it gives them this mystical power. These are not massively complicated businesses and things that were hard to build five years ago are easy to build now. And there are open source platforms like Mastodon, you, know, you see people starting to gather on Discord a lot more. I think yeah, I think I guess I guess my prediction is that things will fragment, although not totally. I think the Twitter in particular as, as a global news wire, has a lot of staying power.
1: What's the mechanism that Facebook might sort of decline in influence then? Is is it people flee to Substack, Mastodon, Twitter, wherever else, and Facebook just kind of crumbles as a home for anything other than you know, pictures of of dogs and hate speech? Like, is, is there a particular path that you see ahead for the platform? Or is it just a general sense that these things are often more of a flash in the pan than they might seem?
0: I mean, I think, you know, I used to spend a lot of time every day on Facebook and I don't spend almost any now. And although I use WhatsApp, a Facebook product and some Instagram, right? But uh, but I th- I mean, I think, you know, it's funny, I was just writing something about 2000 and about the old the first Obama campaign in '08 and back then Facebook was how you reached young people and now I don't know any young people who are on Facebook and it's how you know and so these I mean I just think you know a bar or a restaurant can become popular and then unpopular too and and I just think you sort of see right now declining usage of the product and so that's I mean you know that's that's a big problem for them.
2: So in that case you know in your column on the oversight board you said something along the lines of the decision is sort of one of the most important decisions about whether Trump gets his platform back and to reconnect with his his voters. And you sort of mentioned that the European Union and, and Merkel are... Uncomfortable with that decision. On the other hand, you're sort of saying the platform's declining in relevance. It's not where anyone sort of. It's not where the future is. So, do you really see it as a, as a massively consequential decision, either sort of in the history of Facebook and its power, or in the history of American and potentially world politics?
0: Yeah, I do. I mean, I think it's you know it's where the present is. It's where you know tens of millions of his supporters were hearing from him every day, and so. It's important in that way. And I also think the question with this oversight board is, you know, is there sort of a path for to legitimacy for it? And that's so weird. I mean, I don't know. You're the legal scholars, not me. But there's something kind of strange and, you know, magical about where, where, how is legitimacy generated. But it does seem to me that a big decision, like, you know, a big, a big decision, if it's well done and they stand by it and it is implemented, suddenly takes them from being this weird PR stunt to being like, oh, huh, this thing has actual power. And I I know that's how the people who, what, what people who are involved hope happens.
1: The discussions around the oversight board have led also to discussions about what the proper relationship is between the press and big tech companies. You know, there's a lot of frustration about how opaque these companies are, how difficult it can be to get any idea about what's going on, whether reporting on them is falling prey to a kind of journalism that's particularly toxic. Is reporting on big tech companies unusual or unique in this respect, in your view?
0: It is an odd moment. I mean, I think, you know, the tradition of reporting on big tech companies was so, until, you know, fairly recently, was so promotional and ridiculously positive. And I think there was then this really sort of self-aware backlash to that. And I do think reporters get tangled up in their relationships with these companies and, and in the sort of performance of those relationships online in ways that I, that I, I don't know that I wouldn't do, but different, again, different reporters, different publications have different, different approaches. I guess the other, the other thing that sometimes bothers me about the reporting on this is that often what you're doing is if you're not careful, you're sort of, you know, you're becoming kind of a mall cop, like you're reporting that Facebook is violating its standards in not, acting in such and such a way. And I think that sometimes people take these companies rules too seriously, like who cares if they're violating their own rules? It's I mean, that's sort of an easy gotcha. And when the harder questions are kind of what should the rules be and what's actually happening?
1: That goes to my next question, which is about the the criticism that people in the tech world often make about reporting in this space. Which is that there's this idea that journalists are, you know, uniquely or unfairly critical of big tech platforms out of you know some kind of jealousy or bitterness. And I will say, I, I think that this criticism is is often overstated and, and used in sort of toxic ways. But as a journalist, I actually do think that there may be something to that. Um, you know, that there, there's often a sense among writers and reporters that the big platforms kind of destroy the business model for profitable journalism and aren't even functioning well as a replacement. Do you think that that criticism is fair?
0: Yeah, I mean, it depends, you know, as you say, like, I think there's, I think that there are folks in the tech world who are just remarkable, like really prominent people who are sort of paranoid and confused about how journalism works in ways that are really strange for people that smart although it's true in Mm -hmm. politics too you just run across people who just you know really think they understand what's happening and have a big theory of the conspiracy against them and you're just like and and having you know run buzzfeed at times we would be at the heart of this conspiracy it's like you know that there you are not in fact we are not in fact conspiring to destroy your company for some series of things related to some other investment of yours like i'm confident that's not true but on the other hand, right, there's this industrial rivalry. I mean, it's not just a theory that the social media platforms did a lot of damage to the business models of the news business. Like, that's obviously the fact. And so I think that, you know, you somebody like Robert Thompson, who's the CEO of the Wall Street Journal, would probably say, well, you know, it's not hypocritical for us to say to, I mean, obviously, there's an industrial interest in you know, having money go to having, yeah, fundamentally advertising dollars go to news publishers rather than social media platforms. But there's nothing hypocritical in that because the publishers believe that news is good and important and that the platforms have done something bad by diminishing the supply of it and causing there to be less of it. Like there's no contradiction or hypocrisy there. But I do think that there is this underlying industrial battle going on that sometimes gets overlaid with the kind of yeah that gets tangled up in in the reporting and in the moralizing that sometimes and actually in you know in Evelyn's native land of Australia where everything is blunter and simpler it's playing out this very direct way where it's just a normal industrial fight between two industries in a at the you know what do they call it the markets or consumer commission or whatever competition board I can't remember what it's called the ACCC you know, which typically would be ruling on, we you know, a conflict between a bunch of shipping companies and a port, is ruling on the conflict between news publishers and and platforms. And I think it's it's useful to realize that that's certainly part of what's going on.
2: So I mean, it's it's the A triple C then. But I apologize for my country's tech policy. We don't have a good record in this space.
0: Why, why are you apologizing? I think it's. I actually think it's so straightforward like in the u.s there's this whole idea that these tech geniuses are doing things so complicated that like silly regulators could never understand them and in australia there i mean these there's there are so many country, companies that are more complicated than social media companies like bus companies you know like they do really complicated <laughs> things and so i don't, i'm kind of i like how the directness with which they're approaching it
2: yeah. And I mean, it goes to what you said before about the algorithms. There's just sort of this mysticism or or magic myth about these companies that they are so technologically advanced that us simpletons could could never understand them. And they roll out sort of lingo and phrases to, to ward off people's uh, scrutiny that is just sort of all smoke and mirrors, I think, a lot of the time. Okay. So for something slightly lighter, Tell us about a survey that you recently had done that you summarized as saying, uh, never tweet. You yourself definitely do not take this advice, which I'm glad for. Your Twitter feed is fun. And, you know, we had to delay the start of this recording this podcast because you said, oh, there's this document. I just have to tweet it. So it seems like you and, and Twitter have a have a close relationship. Why should we even care if journalists tweet?
0: Yeah, the survey, I guess that headline wasn't really accurate. The survey didn't. It was sort of tongue in cheek. The survey didn't really say never tweet let's say, I mean, a lot of journalists, certainly myself included, are, you know, have Twitter has sort of rewired our brains because it's just this incredible newswire. It's, It's, you know, it's both the place where you can find out new information and talk about it with other smart people and your sources are on there and the newsmakers are on there. I mean, it's, you know, there's a lot of reasons journalists are kind of addicted to Twitter. But I think the underlying then debate is between people who think that you, there are these sort of two sides and, you know, one gets kind of caricatured as objectivity and the other kind of caricatured as a kind of, progressive or woke kind of engaged journalism. But I think those are both, I don't know. I'm not sure those caricatures are that useful, but basically one, you know, there are people who say journalists who go and state their opinions, whether on Twitter or elsewhere, but Twitter is where we mostly do it are giving up the trust of people who are going to read them and say, wow, this person is too biased. I can't trust them. And conversely people. And I think I put myself more in this camp who say, well, like I'm actually more likely to trust somebody who's not hiding their views. Like, I like transparency and I want to know where you're coming from and that you can be a professional given that, but also kind of what your blind spots are. And it's helpful to me. And, and one thing, and these, are, these debates play out obviously mostly on Twitter, but also in kind of hand-wringing newsroom discussions and often like, you know, ethics, sort of the, the, the industry of, of journalistic ethics loves to talk about this stuff. And it just occurred to me that one thing that I had never seen done was actually asking, you know, the audience you know, well, you know, it's not, it's not fundamentally a moral or sort of theoretical question. It's an empirical question of what makes people trust you more. And so that's why I wanted to pull it. It's hard to pull because it's not like most people spend their time thinking about these questions and have on the tip of their tongue an answer to the degree that we were really able to get to the bottom of it. I think the two most interesting findings were, you know, if you, if you give people two sort of value statements, one, one, I trust journalists more if I know their opinions, the other, you know, I would trust them more if they keep their opinions to themselves there's no clear outcome. Like, people are pretty split. There, I think liberals, African Americans, tend a little more toward wanting to know their opinions, conservatives a bit less. But people are split within groups. There's not some, oh, wow, this is the silver bullet, this is the right way to do it, which I think is part of the reason media is fragmenting and, it, and it's complicated. Different different people want different things. The other was I tried to, uh, we did a copy of the tweet by uh, Lauren Wolf, this Times reporter who, or Times editor, who had tweeted that, she in and Glenn Greenwald, you know, screenshotted it and treated it as a, you know, horrible thing that she had done that she tweeted that she saw Biden walk across the North Lawn and it gave her chills. Could mean different things, who knows, right? She's I think she said, Well, it was just like nice to see democracy restored. Fair. But in any case, we showed, you know, five thousand Americans or three thousand Americans, that tweet and basically said, Do you think this is biased? And the overwhelming response was basically, What the hell are you talking about? This is confusing. So, you know. I don't think there was a clear finding.
1: It's a it's a good reminder that journalists often are mostly just talking to themselves <laughs> on Twitter to to some extent. Yes. Um so I wanted to close by asking you about a column you wrote before the election which was titled It's the end of the era for it's the end of an era for the media no matter who wins. Is it the end of an era? What what have you seen over the last couple of weeks since Biden's inauguration? Do you think that we're Gonna see some dawn of a, a brave new Biden era media.
0: There, I mean, there are there are a bunch of basic, you know inexorable trends going on. A trend toward you know mobile technology and toward digital technology and things like that, and toward unbundling in the television business that Trump, in some ways, postponed. You know, he um, was so much a creature of the media he'd come up with in the '80s and was so obsessed with legacy brands like the New York Times, in particular, and CNN. With, tel- with old style television, that he kind of breathed new life into these businesses and these brands that had been struggling in various ways and, you know, gave them a sense of mission. But also, you know, I remember when I was at BuzzFeed, it was so frustrating to know that the, the, the Trump, like, you know, you gave him a phone and said, can you find BuzzFeed on here? I, he probably couldn't have. And same. Same was true, by the way, of Breitbart. It was a huge problem for them that he was, you know, just totally obsessed with the media of the '80s, like, and he wanted to reach him, be to talk to the New York Post, and and I think for some publications who you know who were nimble, who were able to take that and shift towards subscription businesses, like the Times and the Washington Post, he helped them over a kind of hump that they will now be fine. But I think. For a lot of others, there's still these huge open questions around what they become and a kind of reckoning, a sort of, you know, technical, logical and cultural reckonings that got postponed that are now going to happen. And that's all intensified by the fact that the leaders of a large number of those places are going to be gone over the next 18 months. So if you think of, I mean, almost any major American news organization, so CNN, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, I guess NBC just had turnover, ABC, like, I mean, almost sort of any of them will be run by new, a different person on January 1st, 2022 than was on January 1st, 2020. And and that's, and then that matters too. And there's a generational shift and kind of a, and, 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 and the matter of sort of everybody, a, a sort of moment of each of these things deciding what they are. Buzzfeed, Huffington Post, lots of places. Lawfare. I don't know if you know, but I heard there's a lot of um, turmoil in your senior ranks.
1: Yeah, exactly. My column exactly. next week. I I will say I was going to say that, um, you know, as an editor at at Lawfare, we had the extremely weird experience early in the presidency of Trump quoting, misquoting something from the site in a tweet clearly without having any comprehension of what the site actually was or even that it was a website at all, which I think is a a pretty good (laughs) encapsulation of of that dynamic.
0: Yeah, I mean, he called BuzzFeed a failing pile of garbage, which was great congrats us, basically yeah we sold like 50 dollars worth of t-shirts that day that's a filling pile of garbage
1: i confess lawfare did not sell any t-shirts although maybe we should have um <laughs> all right on on that note i think we're we're out of time so ben thank you so much for joining us
0: yeah thanks for having me nice talking to you
1: you've been listening to arbiters of truth the lawfare podcast mini series on disinformation you can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast in whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.